But right now, if you would please open your Bibles to Psalm 145. I'd like to read this psalm to you and then briefly pray. Psalm 145. This is a hymn of praise to God the great King. I will extol you my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all he has made. All your work shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Verse 1 again, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Verse 21, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Let us pray. Our great God and King, Creator, Redeemer, and all-caring Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus and through the Holy Spirit, we ask you to help us as we look more closely at this particular portion of your revelation, your word. Open the eyes of our hearts Increase our understanding of you. Help us 
to grow in our knowledge of you, that we might grow in our love for you, and that we might be more faithful in our service to you. We thank you that you are the great king and that your kingdom rules over all. Now help us, your sons and daughters, both old and young alike, to grow in our knowledge and love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the message of this psalm is very simple but very profound. We must praise God because he is the great king who is worthy to be praised. As I said, this is a hymn of praise to God the great king. And praise is simply the expression of approval, of admiration. You know, you have 150 psalms in the book of Psalms, and they're very carefully arranged. Generally, they move from lament to praise. The earlier psalms in the beginning of the book of the Psalter have a lot to do with lament. Jamie read from one of them earlier, Psalm 13, when we opened the meeting today. How long, O Lord? How long must I suffer? And the focus is often on the individual. The psalmist representing the people of God express their difficulties, their problems. Life is hard, right? But psalms of lament that focus on the individual eventually when we get toward the end of the Psalter, especially 145 to 150, are all hymns of praise where the focus shifts from the self to God, the great King. And so that's where we are today. This is a psalm of orientation. This points us in the right direction. It points us toward God. So often we get caught up with ourselves. It really can't be helped because each one of us is, the own, is our own center of consciousness. But, but to be lifted up out of ourselves and into something a little bigger than myself, ah, that's one of the reasons we have this psalm. Because it helps us to see that above all and through all, there is a great God whose kingdom rules over all and who is therefore worthy to be praised. Now, there's a lot of thought that went into this individual psalm that we just read. Um, it's what we call an alphabetical acrostic. Uh, each line in this psalm begins with a succeeding letter in the Hebrew alphabet, uh, with one exception. Um, you notice there was a line in brackets there. Uh, the 14th letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Nun, is for some reason left out of this. And, and exegetes have puzzled, why, why, why is that the case? Um, was it by design or did the psalmist just make a mistake? I mean, when you say the ABCs, you don't usually leave out any letters, but the N, the Nun, was left out. Perhaps it may have been by design to show that only God himself is perfect. And even the best of our attempts to adequately describe him fall short. Whatever the reason, there's structure to this psalm. And we're going to look at it in three parts. The first part in verses 1 through 9 express the reason, one of the reasons why we should praise God. 
There are three reasons that we'll get to. First one is we should praise God because he's the great creator and redeemer. The psalm begins with exuberant words of praise and exaltation. It's as if David has ransacked his Hebrew thesaurus to find all kinds of different ways of expressing praise to God. If we went back over it and picked out the verbs, we'd see that David says, I will extol, I will bless, every day I will bless, we will declare, we will commend, we'll speak, meditate, pour forth, sing aloud, give thanks, make known, and tell. Tell what? Make known what? Give thanks for what? Well, for God's works, his wondrous works, his acts, his mighty acts, his deeds, his awesome deeds, his abundant goodness, his righteousness, his greatness, and on and on it goes. And if you're coming to this maybe for the first time, you might be thinking, well, that's nice. It's very exuberant, and I'm sure it's sincere, but it kind of reminds me of the first real Christians that I met that helped lead me to the Lord. They were very nice and they were very kind, but they were just saying, praise the Lord all the time. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And after a while, it's like, uh, yeah, okay. Just a little praise you, thank you, praise you, thank you. But there's no detail given. There's no description. It's all rather general. And if you ask why, well, verse 3 tells you why. Because great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his, his greatness is unsearchable. I'm saying, well, okay. Have you ever read the Psalms and kind of had that thought? Can you fill it out a little bit for me? But it's right here that we have to understand something. It is assumed that we come to this psalm already having some prior knowledge and understanding of who this great God is. We are presumed to know some things about God. In particular, this psalm assumes that we know God is both creator and Redeemer, although you won't find those actual words there. Creation and redemption are the two big categories that are filled up with God's great and awesome works. His mighty deeds and acts are the acts of God the Creator and God the Redeemer. And it's these truths that one generation must pass down to the next. This is Bible 101. This is Theology 101. Actually, folks, this is elementary school. The very first words of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's right there in the very first line. God is creator. And what has he created? The heavens and and the earth. And Psalm 45, 145 verse 5 tells us to meditate on these wondrous works. Now that phrase heaven, heavens and earth, that's, that's a figure of speech. It's, it's called a merism. It's where two words are intended to express a totality. So if I said she was on the phone day and night, it means she was on the phone all the time. When it says God created the heavens and the earth, it means God created everything. Everything. 
And that's a whole lot. Almost 50 years ago, IBM put out a short video called Powers of Ten. You may recall I mentioned this once before. You can check it out on YouTube, Powers of Ten. Say that with me, Powers of Ten, because I really do suggest you check it out. In this video, a camera pans back on a picnic scene, and every 10 seconds, it moves upward by a power of 10, from 1 meter to 10 meters to 100 meters to 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, million, you get the idea. Within a minute, you're at the outer edges of the solar system. A few seconds later, you're at the outer reaches of the known extent of the universe. You watch this thing and you come away stunned, absolutely stunned, because it goes on and on and on, and God created all of this. Oh, Lord my God, Thou art very great, and Thou art clothed with majesty. Now this, I'm sad to say, is for the most part ignored in our culture. People will not speak of creation. Because if they talk about creation, then that implies a creator and someone with whom we have to do, someone to whom we may be answerable. People don't talk about creation. No, they'll talk about nature. They will rhapsodize about nature, but not creation, because you see, nature is impersonal. And you might talk about Mother Nature, but that again is just not real. Nature is impersonal, but God the Creator is personal. Here's the thing about God. He's personal, he's both personal and absolute. <coughs> Excuse me. And he is the one with whom we have to do. He's absolute and he's personal. Now to say that God is absolute is to say that he is most basic, fundamental, self-sufficient, having life in himself, undergirding everything, having all power, all authority, and ruling over all. He does not rely on anything outside of himself for his existence. God existed before he created the heavens and the earth, and if the heavens and the earth were to go out of existence, guess what? God would still exist. God would still be because he is absolute. I am that I am. Now, in addition to being absolute, God is also personal. Strictly speaking, God is not a person. God is tri-personal. In our Trinitarian language, he is the three-personed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible presents God as tri-personal. Now, personal means that he has all the attributes that a person has. He thinks, he acts, he feels, he enters into relationships. 
the three persons of the Trinity have always existed in a perfect love relationship. They didn't need to create. Those three persons did not need. God did not need to create us, but he did, and he did so he could extend his love to us and enter into relationship with us. We are persons who are created in his image. We don't have the absolute part, but we have the person part, right? So God is the archetypal person. We're all stamped with his image. We're all copies made in his likeness. Now, one way that I've been able to get my head around this is to think about superheroes. Superheroes are persons, but they're not absolute. They're limited, right? I mean, there's only so many things that Wolverine can do. It's not all that many, really. Now, Superman, he's got a problem with kryptonite, right? They've got their limitations. So superheroes are personal, but they're not absolute. Now, when you think about absolute, think about the force, right? The force be with you, Luke. The force is absolute, unlike the poor superhero. The force is vast. The force is basic. The force is fundamental, undergirding and underpinning everything. The force rules everything. But alas, the force is impersonal. You can't reason with the force. You can't have a relationship with the force. You can't have a cup of coffee with the force. And the force, it functions somewhat like fate. You know, people talk about fate. Well, it was fate that they met. Well, what is that? I don't know, but that's why they met. But the force, like fate, besides being impersonal, is also baloney. It's a false concept. You can forget about it. And people throw these things, I mean, I, I'm a baseball fan. I'll be watching a baseball game and the commentator will say, well, the baseball gods today have, and I said, there are no baseball gods. Now, there's only one true and living God. You don't have to be afraid of the baseball gods or the golf gods or the football gods. They don't exist. All right, so here's the deal. God is both personal and absolute, and he created and has the whole world in his hands. Oh, Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, how great thou art. Now, that's God the creator. This psalm assumes that you know that God is the great creator. Now, I don't think we should assume that anymore. I think we need to school ourselves in these things over and over again, or you come to something like this, and they just sound like empty words of praise, but they're not. There's thought behind them. The psalm assumes that you meditate on his works and on his greatness. Because knowing this enables you to grow in your knowledge of God. Remember my little syllogism? You will not serve someone you do not love, and you cannot love someone you do not know. So let's get busy in knowing God. That's why we're going to have Sunday classes. That's why we preach from the Bible. This is our source of knowledge. 
both the creation that God has made inwardly. He's given us consciences and he's given us the revelation of his word so that we can come to know him and grow in him and love him and serve him effectively. And that's the basis of a life that glorifies God. All right, that's God the creator, but the psalm also assumes that you know God is redeemer. Uh, just just a, a few moments on this. You know, God created the first man in Genesis 2, but that man sinned, and then sin entered into the world, and because of sin, death also entered into the world. We are mortal, and the world, along with mankind, is fallen, and that's why we have the problems that we have. That's a real quick overview of the state of the world, okay? But God didn't just leave things there. Immediately, he initiated a rescue plan to redeem this fallen world. And that work of redemption is what the whole Bible, almost the whole Bible, tells us about. That work of redemption is carried out by God, the Redeemer. The Bible tells this story of redemption. He's in the process of redeeming the world, one day it will be entirely recreated. And in the Old Testament, the big redemptive event is the Exodus, when God brought his people out of the house of bondage in Egypt and through great signs and mighty wonders, eventually got them into the promised land. He did this through the plagues, through the Passover, the crossing of the Red Sea. And Psalm 145 expects us to know this as well. God's not only the creator and also the redeemer. Now, fast forward beyond the time of the writing of this psalm to our New Testament era where we are today, that Exodus story in the Old Testament, well, that Repro that, that actually points forward to something else. In the New Testament, the Exodus experience is reprised in something we call the gospel. The great redemptive event of the New Testament is the cross and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the big deal. And, and those two things, the Old Testament Exodus story, the New Testament story of Christ's death and resurrection, that on a greater scale releases slaves from their spiritual Egypt and brings us into a promised land. We've entered that land, but we haven't fully entered it. A little bit more about that in a moment. But in the Exodus, there was a lamb taken for a household, and on the Day of Atonement, there was a lamb that was slain for the people of Israel. But in the New Testament, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, remember what he said? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right. And we were in the world, and now we have been brought out of the world into the kingdom of God's dear Son through that great redemptive act of the gospel. And the gospel is this. God loved us so much that he sent his Son to die for us. Now, that gospel message, my friends, if you believe that, you're saved. If you believe that Christ lived and died and rose again, and you believe that he died for you, and you repent and believe that, you go from spiritual death to spiritual life, your sins are forgiven, you receive the gift of eternal life, you go from becoming an object of God's wrath to being one of his sons and daughters. 
And that's where we sit here today. Now, there may be some people here today that hasn't happened to you yet. You heard Elmer's testimony. It's a wonderful testimony. He had a lot of knowledge about God, but it wasn't until just recently, relatively recently, that he repented and believed and gave himself to God, and he expressed that by being baptized in water, which is exactly what God tells us to do when we become convinced that he is the true and living God and we place our faith and trust in him. Everyone in this room at some point or another did that unless you're an unbeliever and then we want you to do that. We're, we're hoping that you'll do that. We're praying for you that you'll do that. We hope if you're here checking this out you, that you know you're welcome, that, that every one of us sat in that seat at one point checking this out. Is God real? Is Jesus real? I found this out when I was 22 years old. It's over 50 years ago, and I put my faith in Christ, and my life has been blessed ever since. It hasn't been without challenges or difficulties, but it's a brand new life trusting in God. I know God as creator, and I know his, Him as redeemer. This is the wonderful truth that when we do place ourselves safely in the hands of God, we are forever saved. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 10. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and my father are one. No one can snatch us out of those hands. My friends, we are the unsnatchable. You and I are unsnatchable. I like that. God the creator, God the redeemer, that's my God. That's your God if you trust in him. Does that not cause you to want to praise this great God? And, and this, by the way, is true regardless of your present circumstances. These truths are what we call objective and unchangeable. God always was and always is creator, and God always was and is redeemer. And that's why the psalm begins with such strong language expressing praise to the God who has all done this. But it again assumes that you and I are up to speed with this. You know, if you're not up to speed with this and if you're not really steeped in what I'm talking about, if you're more in tune with your present circumstances and the state of the world, you are likely to fall into this danger of saying, well, yeah, God, but what have you done for me lately? You know what I'm talking about? That attitude, what have you done for me lately? Ooh, don't let that happen to you. The state of a soul that says that is not healthy. What's the answer to it? Go back to the basics. All right? There's a little bit more to say about this in a moment. We've got two more reasons to cover, and they'll be more brief. Verses 10 through 13 tell us that we ought to praise God because he is the great king. God is the great king. Now, the thing about kings is kings have power and authority. Power and authority to deliver the goods. 
So verses 10 to 13 again. All your work shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. God is the great king and his kingdom is everlasting. That's what you need to learn from this. God is the great king. There are all kinds of kings, but then there's the great king. All right, there are kings, but then there's the king of kings. That's who God is. He's the king of kings, and his kingdom is everlasting. Again, that's unlike any of the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God is in view here, but what is the kingdom of God? Well, that's another biblical concept that runs throughout Scripture. The kingdom of God is the realm of God's rule. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God. He said at the beginning of his ministry, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. When we repent and believe in the gospel, we become citizens of God's kingdom. As Christians, we have a dual citizenship. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. I'm also a citizen of the United States of America. Now, that's a kingdom that's not everlasting, but the kingdom of God is everlasting. And when I come into that kingdom, I come under God's rule and reign. I benefit from his protection and his provision. And God's kingdom is characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not a physical kingdom right now. It's what we call a spiritual kingdom. So if somebody said, can you show me your citizenship papers in the kingdom of God? I can't take it out of my wallet and show you. I have a passport that says I'm a citizen of the United States, but I, I don't really have a passport that I can show you here because it's a spiritual kingdom. And right now I have spiritual benefits, okay? I can't, somebody says, could you show, okay, I hear you're saved. Show me your salvation. It's like, boy, I'd love to, but right now it's spiritual and internal, so I can't show it to you. But I can tell you that I have a joy, a joy, joy down in my heart. And I have a peace that passes understanding, but it's down in the depths of my heart. And I have a, the wonderful love of my blessed Redeemer, but that's also down in the depths of my heart. I've also got the bubbling belief that baffles Buddha and the convincing conviction that confuses Confucius, but it's all down in the depths of my heart. So I can't really show it to you, but I can sing about it, and I'm happy, so very happy, because I've got the love of Jesus in my heart, down in my heart. All right, this is from years of doing children's ministry. Okay. Kingdom of God is characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy. It arrives 
when Jesus arrives. Jesus has arrived. And when I believe in him, I enter into that kingdom. But that kingdom hasn't arrived in its fullness. So Jesus taught his disciples to pray, O Father, may your kingdom come. In some respects it has come, but in other respects it has not yet come. That's why we talk about the kingdom of God as something that is already and not yet. It has broken into this broken world, but not in its fullness. Nevertheless, it's an everlasting kingdom. The kingdoms of this world are not everlasting. Sometimes the kings of this world get a little too big for their britches, and God has to remind them who is the real king. And verse 13 has these words, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Those words are also found on the lips of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar quotes those words when he begins to talk about his experience of humiliation. If you remember Nebuchadnezzar, he was the great king of Babylon. That was a world-dominating kingdom at the time, 6th century B.C. But Nebuchadnezzar got too big for his britches, and God removed the sanity chip from his brain, and he lived like an animal for seven years. And after that, his sanity was restored, and he was restored to his kingdom, and he gave this wonderful testimony of who the great king was, and he said those same words, O oh God, your king, the God of Daniel, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures throughout all generations. I tell you this to just comfort you with the knowledge that the kingdoms of this world will rant and rave. That was Psalm 2 we went over. And sometimes they get out of hand, even the best of kingdoms. But God knows how to keep them in check. There's a reason why he has them going at this time. And we can be caught up in all kinds of political things and culture wars and, and start to freak out and what's happening. And I just want to encourage you, calm down. God has everything under control. He's the king of all kings. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And we should praise God because he's the king of all kings, absolutely in charge of everything. The kingdoms of this world, now, they're not everlasting. Don't ever put your hope in politics or in some individual political leader. Doesn't mean those things aren't important. Yes, they are. We should exercise our duties of citizenship, but they're not ultimate. Of the kingdom of God, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. So that's another reason to praise him, to thank him, to extol him, and the comfort of knowing that in spite of everything that may be happening around us, God has everything under control. Third reason why we should praise him. Verses 14 through 21, praise to God who cares for you. The final part of this psalm turns from God and the big picture, big picture items like creation, redemption, kingdom, turns from those things to little old you and me. Because we might think, well, yeah, that's all wonderful and grand, but, but what about me? Does he care about me? Yeah, he cares about you. God cares for all he's made. He's the covenant keeping God. 
We didn't focus on it, but verse 8 in this psalm are the oft-quoted words of God's self-revelation to Moses. Moses who asked God to reveal himself so he could see him. God said, well, you can't see me directly, but I will pass before you. You can see my afterglow. And as God passed before him, he proclaimed his name. And he said in Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is the covenantal refrain of the covenant-keeping God. And you find those words repeated throughout the Bible. The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is who our God is. He's merciful, He's gracious, He's slow to anger. That's expressed, that verse 8 in the psalm here is expressed more fully in these final words. It's the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. His love never gives up. It never runs out. It's the grace of God that He gives. He gives. He gives again and again. It never runs out out and he knows you and he knows me even the very hairs of our heads are numbered and these final words you can almost hear echoes of the sermon on the mount perhaps Jesus had them in mind as he preached that sermon the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. How are you today? Are you bowed down. Sometimes the weight of things brings us low. The falling. How are you today? Is there a skip in your step? Or are your shoulders slumping? Sometimes it's not hard to tell. We're not always doing great. The Christian life is not lived at some kind of a screaming high of exhilaration. The lows are just as real. 
I've got good news for you. God knows about that too. He's not just creator and redeemer and great king. He's also loving heavenly father who satisfies the desires of every living thing. If we had time, we could go very closely into this psalm and see that God cares here for his entire creation, both the inanimate world and the animate world, every living thing, and that God is righteous and kind. You know, of all of the fruits of the Spirit, I personally think that kindness is the most beautiful. There's something about kindness that just touches my heart. And God is kind. God cares for everything that he's made. He's near to all those who call on him. As we were worshiping this morning, I, play, I pay close attention to the words of the songs we sing. And a lot of them had to do with, appropriately so, God and Jesus in their exaltation above and beyond that transcendent quality of God. But God's not only above and beyond, he's also near and dear. Isaiah prayed to God, the high and holy one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. God says, I dwell in the high and holy place. It's exactly where I'd expect him to dwell, high and holy. But then the verse goes on and says, and also with him who trembles at my word, with the humble one. God also makes his dwelling with the humble. God gives grace to the humble. If you're bowed down and low, and God has brought you low, then cooperate with him. Humble yourself under his mighty hand because he gives grace to the humble. God cares for his entire creation, those who are falling, those who are bowed down. And you know what? He even cares for the unjust and for the evil. He causes his sun to shine on the good and the evil. He causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. But he has particular care for those who call on him. Do you call on him in your distress? Or do you get stubborn? Don't be stubborn. Humble yourself. Call on him. Have a little talk with Jesus. Tell him all about your troubles. Because he will hear you when you cry. And he will answer by and by. And don't let the by and by part put you off. He'll bring the answer when it's the right time. In the meantime, he expects you to trust him. Because whether you can feel it or not, he's near to all who call on him, and he fulfills the desire of those who fear him, and he hears their cry and saves them and preserves all who love him. And that's why you and I are preserved at this very moment. God is all-powerful, but God is also all-caring. And his fatherly care is what you and I need. Fathers, this is what fathers do. They protect 
and they provide. They provide for their families, they protect their families. Now it is also true that sometimes we don't experience this and in our relationship with God sometimes clouds hide the sun, sometimes the storms of life threaten and frighten us, sometimes it's our fault, sometimes it's not our fault. But the Lord's faithfulness, mercy, and steadfast love will always be there and doesn't mean that you won't bump your head or stub your toe. The fact is, sometimes God's mercies are severe and they aren't understood to be mercies until long afterward. I mean, think about it. What did Joseph do wrong? Remember the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis? What did Joseph do wrong? Maybe he flashed his coat of many colors a little too much in front of his brothers, but really... Did that deserve the jealous hatred that had him thrown into a pit and then sold into slavery and then end up in prison for years and years to be falsely accused of trying to assault his master's wife? What did Joseph do to deserve all that? And yet at the end of his days, he could tell his brothers who by that time had repented, said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Can you say that? You meant it for evil, but there's a great God who means it all for good. Well, if you know that God is creator, and if you know he's redeemer, and if you know he's king, and if you know he's father, You'll be able to say that, maybe not feel it, but you'll be able to say it because it's true and you'll be able to bless his name forever and ever because God is creator, redeemer, great king and compassionate father. Because that is true, I will praise the Lord and bless his name forever and ever. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray especially for my brothers and sisters that right now are bowed down and feeling the weight of circumstances in this world that are pressing upon them. I pray for my brothers and sisters and even for those who do not yet know you but are turning to you because life is hard. I pray for them and I pray that you'd help them to know that you are the great creator and redeemer who is touched by the feeling of our own weaknesses and who sent Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who lived a fully human life while remaining fully divine and experienced all of the hardships of this life and infinitely more when he died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, whether what they're experiencing is due to their own shortcomings, faults, failures, and sins, or whether, relatively speaking, they are without blame. Have mercy. I pray that they would feel your presence and your nearness, that they would call out to you, that you would continue to preserve them, and that you would reveal yourself as the God who is gracious and kind 
and merciful and whose steadfast love never ceases. In Jesus' name, amen.